It was one early summer, I guess it was maybe a late spring, I was driving south to Florida, we were on a family vacation, and it just stood out to me, this drive, because this preponderance of this certain billboard that appeared again and again by the roadside, if you remember, it read, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. That was over 10 years ago. (laughs) It's evident that was the wrong prediction. And what stood out in my mind about the billboard, not only for the gall to try and predict the day of the Lord when he's coming, but on that billboard, there was this standout like star or sticker, if you can imagine a cereal box, and it has a star sticker on it, a call out box that says, you know, free toy inside. This one said, you know, as it said, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. On the call out, it read, the Bible guarantees it. Now, I later found out that there were some 5,000 billboards like this put out by a guy named Harold Camping, a self-attested Bible teacher and radio host. Of course, given again, that was over 10 years ago, he was wrong. And then by May 22nd of 2011, so a day after prediction was proved wrong, he actually had the audacity to adjust his timetable and say, oh, I meant October 21st, 2011. Well, again, that, was, that time has come and gone. But these were not the first times that Camping tried to do the impossible to predict the world's end. He first suggested 1988, and then 1994, and then 2008, and finally he settled on 2011. But nor, of course, is he the first one to try and guess the day of Jesus' return, and he surely won't be the last. And yet, Jesus so clearly tells us in this text, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And yet, the predictions keep coming. And with them, with every one of them, expectations keep falling. For many of us, between the false predictions and, frankly, just the long time in coming when he will arrive back to earth like he promised. We're waiting so long against these false predictions and the long wait. Many of us are being inoculated against the warnings even of Scripture, and we're becoming complacent to the thought of when will Jesus come back. Yet as many of us, sure, we know Jesus is coming back, We're just not sure when, and many of us, or most of the time, we live and think like, well, it's probably not too soon anyway. Well, this text comes as a spiritual wake-up call, because you don't know when he'll return. You don't know your own end, what that will be, and when. So the word is for us this morning, you must always be ready. You need to get ready right now for Jesus' return. You have to have your soul ready today, this moment, to meet Jesus, because it might be this day. You don't know when. Your soul must be ready to see Jesus and so deal with him, because he will certainly deal with you. So get ready right now, because no one can predict when Christ in the end will come. Are you ready? And we have in this text from Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51, we have three ways or steps to get ready, to get ready for his return. And the first is this, how do you get ready for the end? You got to be alert. You need to be alert because the end is going to come unexpectedly. Verses 36 to 41. We must first be alert. We must be spiritually awake, attuned, alert, because the end's going to come, Jesus says, when you least expect it. You got to be on guard. Now, before we dig into this, we, we got to go back and look at how this extended teaching from Jesus about the end, how this all started. Of course, it was prompted by this question the disciples asked back in verse 3, if you remember. 
We've been dissecting their, their questions, really, over the past couple weeks. And we see they really ask two questions, fundamentally. They're asking first, when? When are these things going to happen? When are you coming? When is the end of the age going to be? And then second, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? What will be the, the markers? What will be the, the post signs to indicate to us the end is near? What are we to look for? along the road to the end of history that shows us, no, the end is coming, it is fast approaching. But here's the thing. If I give you all of these signs on what to look for and what to anticipate, when the final day comes, when Jesus touches down on earth to eliminate evil and reign, if I give you all of the signs and things to look for, you should actually be able to predict then precisely when he's going to come, don't you see? I mean, for example, if I was going to give you directions, how might you drive to the Midlothian YMCA? I might tell you, well, you're going to go out the parking lot there and you're going to turn left, right? And then you're going to go around this bend and you're going to go under some power lines and then you're going to pass the Grove neighborhood on the right. You should see a sign. And then as you keep going down Coalfield Road, before you hit the traffic light, the YMCA is right there on the right. I'm giving you all of these markers to look for, such that if you follow them, you shouldn't be shocked that the YMCA is right there, assuming I'm a reliable source about these things. I gave you all the signs. I gave you all the road markers to guide you there. You should be able to look for it and anticipate it precisely. But that's the curious thing. When it comes to the end of time, when the end will come, it seems, despite giving all of these signs, you cannot predict or anticipate when it's going to come. No one can know when. The end's going to come unexpectedly. So how does this work, Jesus? (laughs) Explain that one for me. Well, he will as we go. But first, let's pause that and we'll return to it. But we just need to first reckon with this truth. The end will come unexpectedly. These three adjectives describe well the coming of the end. It's going to be secret. It's going to be surprising. And it's going to be sudden. It's going to be secret, surprising, and sudden. First, it's secret because no one on earth or in heaven, besides the Father, knows when the end will come. That's where Jesus begins. Look at verse 36. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, first, quick aside. Wait a minute here, right? Jesus, I thought you were God. (laughs) I thought you knew everything. How, How do you not know this? Well, to be short about this. This just shows one way or side of how Jesus, God the Son, limited himself as he took on our human flesh. He humbled himself in the incarnation and so temporarily suspended the use of all of his powers, evidently one of those being his, what we call, omniscience, that he knows everything. He humbled himself so he could have knowledge in that way like us, that he might truly live like us, so then he can die for us, really as our substitute taking our place. So at least at this point, you might say in Jesus' life and ministry, his knowledge was limited. The Father wasn't yet letting him in on the timetable about the very end. And so that no one but the Father knows then that very date that these events will happen. The end will come. And that way, it's a secret. No one can know. Again, the audacity. Might you say the blasphemy for anyone to predict when it will come. 
But the events of the end will also be surprising. They'll be surprising. In what way? Well, Jesus explains, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he draws this comparison to the judgment that was in Noah's day to the judgment that's going to come on the final days. And they're both going to be surprised, that is, those judged. They won't see it coming. They didn't see it coming. Verses 38 and 39 now. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They were surprised. They didn't see it coming. Instead, right up to the day, the moment of their very judgment was upon them, they were living life as normal, eating and drinking as they'd always done, marrying and going on with life, planning their futures. And then, boom, was that lightning? It's starting to rain. And then the rain doesn't stop. Though our judgment hasn't come, this is often us, isn't it? As we think about the future, or actually as we intend to not think about it. This describes our own days and culture. We do everything we can to forget about our end, about death, and what happens afterward, the judgment. It seems as though so often as the thought just crosses our mind, we do whatever we can to distract ourselves from such sober and serious thoughts. Instead of thinking about our sins, our wrongs, and what that means as we come to the end before God, We try and forget all of those things. We entertain ourselves. We distract ourselves, whether it's in hobbies or shows, or you can add to it. We party and live it up, setting before us not the far future, but the very near future of whatever the next high is. What's that next vacation? What's that next rung of the corporate ladder? What is that next event in my family's life? What's that next goal that we might be so short-sighted to ignore the inevitable that we will all die and face God in the judgment. Are you ready? Despite what he's telling you, don't be surprised. Because the end will come quite unexpectedly, at least in that sense, when you're not expecting it. So that means you must get ready now. Furthermore, these days that will come, these days that will come, we'll see they're going to separate humanity between those with Christ and those that are against him. When those days come, they are going to come suddenly. Verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field, One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The end will come so suddenly, so swiftly, so unexpectedly that you can have two people working side by side, going through their normal daily life right alongside one another, and then one's gone and one's left. Two are in the field, two are at the mill, and then there's only one and they're left alone all of a sudden left behind. Now, this prompts the question from the text and really the context, because it's not immediately clear, I think. Do you want to be taken or do you want to be left behind? That is, are people being taken away to judgment? That's possible. Or are they being taken up and rescued as they suddenly, it seems to vanish? A number of Bible interpreters understand that those taken are to be taken away to God's judgment. In other words, you don't want to be taken. You want to be left behind to reign with Christ on the earth. 
And indeed, when you compare that situation with Noah's just mentioned before, we read in verse 39 that the floodwaters of judgment swept them all away. Of course, that's the judgment. Or the New American Standard reads quite literally there, took them all away again in the judgment. Seems like you don't want to be taken. But interestingly, the Greek word for taken in our particular focus in verses in 40 and 41, it's different than the one used earlier in verse 39 about those taken away by the flood or swept away. Often our word taken there in verses 40 and 41, as in one is taken and one is left, our word for taken often means to have someone taken with you, to take someone with you to be with you. Matthew used this very word early on when the angel tells Joseph to not fear to take Mary as his wife with him. Or just a bit later, again in Matthew, Joseph is said to take Mary and Jesus, that is, with him to Egypt. That's the word here when it says one is taken and then one is left. And this very idea to be taken to be with you, it's precisely how Jesus describes his own coming in another passage when he's going to bring his people to himself. I'm thinking of John 14, verse 3. It's the very same word. Jesus says this in John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Why? That where I am, you may be also. It seems then that take you to myself, again, this very same word, it's the very same word Jesus uses also in Matthew 24, when one's taken and one left. It seems... As though then being taken is the preferred option. You're being taken to be with Jesus. You don't want to be left behind to then undergo the wrath and judgment of God upon the earth. These events then, this secret and surprising coming, seem to describe what we call the rapture. That's the sudden and unexpected snatching up of God's church from the earth. And he snatches them up to himself. And he does this before then he pours out his wrath and judgment on the earth for those final seven years we've been talking about left over from Daniel. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes the rapture, this sudden taking where one is taken, one is left, just like this. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, you notice Paul's even own anticipation of these things about how soon these might be. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is our blessed hope. To get to see our God and be with him forever. To be caught up from this earth, rescued from the wrath that's about to come upon it. It appears then that this event, this sudden, unexpected rapture of the church, this is the event that kickstarts then the beginning of the end, kickstarts those final seven years of judgment that Jesus otherwise has been telling us all about as he's been in Matthew 24, what we call the Olivet Discourse. So then to turn our attention back to Matthew 24 particularly, let's consider how this all fits together. The disciples, again, remember, they asked two questions. They asked, when are these things going to be, and what will be the sign of the coming of the age? He told them all about the signs, the omens, the indicators, the landmarks that he is about to come. He's about to come and touch down on the earth and bring that age to an end and bring in the judgment. But when? 
When will these things take place? When will the end begin? And that's what Jesus answers us in verse 36. He makes this transition. When you look at the whole of all of these events I've been describing, when are they going to start? When is the coming of Jesus going to begin? Well, it's going to begin unexpectedly. You'll never know. Jesus says, I don't even know. It'll be a surprise. It'll be unexpected. But again, how can it be unexpected if you have all these signs to look for? The answer is because the whole time, those seven years, they all start unexpectedly. That is back to verse 36 when he says, no one knows the day or the hour. He's not just talking about the very moment Jesus returns and touches down on earth. He's referring again to the whole sequence of events and signs that he just described throughout Matthew 24. When will it start? When will the birth pains begin? As we've talked about, when will these signs take place? When will it be the persecution and the apostasy and so forth? When's it going to start? Well, you can't know because it's going to be kick off suddenly. It'll begin when no one's looking for it. And we see here in verses in 40 and 41, it begins with a sudden snatching up of Christ's people to himself from the earth. Again, before his wrath gets poured out. So again, that's how this all can fit together. His sudden rapture of the church kicks off these final seven years of God's judgment on the earth. And again, this is how those final days can come so unexpectedly. As then, after the church is snatched away, the signs of God's judgment keep happening and keep coming. Again, like road markers down the road, telling you you're getting closer and closer to destination. That is, those events until the sun darkens, the moon goes dark, and then finally you've arrived home. That is, Jesus comes home and touches down. And brings his judgment upon the earth to rule the earth. But to all this, how are we supposed to respond to it? How do we get ready for this unexpected end? Well, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That is, in light of all these things that is so unexpected, it's so sudden, you got to be alert. you got to stay awake. Wake up. Don't fall spiritually asleep at the wheel of your life. Stay alert, awake, looking and anticipating he's coming soon. We were talking about this in the elders meeting Tuesday, and one of the men recalled just the measures we take to stay alert, say on an extended road trip, when you're driving, say at night, you know, it's dark, you're tired, maybe you've been driving all day, maybe there's hardly anyone on the road, it's nearly an empty freeway. Your eyelids start to droop a bit, and you're getting groggy. That's a very dangerous time. Your alert level is diminished considerably. And if your eyes ever close, or if you dare say you fall asleep at the wheel, this is perilous. You won't see if a car stops in front of you. You won't see if a a deer runs out in front of your car. You won't see if the road bends. If you're on cruise control, you're going to blaze off the pavement. So you got to stay awake. And so what do we do to stay alert? Because we know it's dangerous. You do anything you can. You roll down the windows. You turn up the music. You start singing loud. You stop and get some coffee. And they all said amen. You pinch yourself. You chew gum. You do whatever it takes. Why? Because of the danger. And Jesus says there's a far greater spiritual danger. if You fall asleep at the wheel as you anticipate the end. Don't be lulled into spiritual sleep, becoming spiritually drowsy. And what will that look like? Well, this is where your spiritual temperature diminishes, to use another word picture. You stop taking the reality of your soul, 
the reality of eternity, the reality of Christ, or the reality of the judgment, you start taking it so seriously. It's no longer such an urgent concern. And so you devote your attention, you're preoccupied about just many other things. And soon you let sins go unconfessed. You let sins go unrepented of. They become excused. You start ignoring God's word. You start skipping the fellowship of the saints. You let, as Jesus talked about before, you let the cares of the world crowd out. Those cares of this world that's passing away, by the way, you let them dominate your thinking. You know, they say one of the best ways to stay awake is to take someone with you on the road if you're feeling drowsy. Take someone with you on this road. You don't have to take this trip by yourself, and actually you're designed not to. This is why the fellowship of the church is so important. Let the church keep you spiritually awake. Let them elbow you in the ribs to keep you alert, to think on Christ, to think on eternity, to think on being faithful all the way to the end. Don't go it alone. That can be dangerous. That can be spiritually fatal. Don't neglect the fellowship as we see the day approaching. Jesus says, wake up. The judgment's coming. Your soul is worth far more than you realize. Don't be drowsy behind the wheel of your life. Second, how do we prepare for the end? You just get ready. Because understand, the end will overcome the unprepared. Verses 43 and 44. This next step for preparing ourselves for the end builds on the last one. Of course, it just has a slightly different emphasis. But be ready for His coming because the end will overcome the unprepared. It will not go well for them. So that if we can't know when Jesus' kickoff will end, if we can't know the day or the hour, here is something that Jesus says you can know. Verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. What's the best way to protect yourself against the threat of God's judgment? Be ready, be watchful, be prepared for it. Don't neglect it. Don't let it take you by surprise. The thief comes upon the house when he assumes the owners will least expect it, when they'll be least alert, least able to stop him. So he goes in the dead of night when his approach cannot be seen. If you saw a suspicious character, you know, walking down your street and then up your driveway, say in a mask and with a crowbar in hand, if you saw them in the light of day, you might call the cops, right? Or do other things. I won't talk about that. But if you're not watching, and then he comes at night, you'll never see him approach. And so what do we do? That's why we get alarm systems. That's why we get security cameras. Because they can watch for us when we can't watch. Because for sure, who needs a camera or security guard if you can just stay awake all the time and keep watch for yourself? But you can't. you got to sleep. Your eyes will close. And so the thief picks the time when he can get in and get out the easiest with a way with your stuff. And in that way, like a thief in the night, Jesus is coming to bring the end of days at a time you do not know or expect or can anticipate. And so you have to keep watch all the time. There's no security camera that can do it for you. You have to be spiritually ready right now. Verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. But are you ready right now? Are you ready to go? You got to be ready. You got to be prepared. So, for example, as we were preparing for our kids to be born, I think especially the first one, we had a bag ready as Aaron was coming up on the due date. 
we had this bag prepared, set by the door that should have had everything we need and probably way, way more to take to the hospital. But we had it all prepared, so we didn't need to run through this checklist as we get to head to the hospital, especially as in the stressful moments of our child's first birth, such that we could be at a moment's notice when the baby tells us it's go time, we're ready. You just grab in the bag, you jump in the car, and we frantically drive to the hospital. And we do that so we're not frantic about other things. Did you grab the, did you remember to turn off the, did you put in my, done, ready, got it, prepared. And so we must be ready to go at a moment's notice, spiritually speaking. Because you don't know the day of his coming. And so you can't delay to take care of yourself spiritually and be caught off guard unprepared. you got to do it now before it's too late. Well, how? First off, don't wait to get right with Christ. Don't wait another second. You can do it right now in your chair. Call out to him. Call out to him for mercy. Would you forgive me because of what you've done on the cross for me? I need you. Don't wait another moment. Because understand, the Lord will not look kindly on your spiritual procrastination. He offers you his most beloved, precious son. He sent him to earth to bear our sins. He sent him to take our place. He sent his beloved son to take his wrath for you. And to so dishonor this God, dishonor his gift, to so disregard the work of Christ, to look at that gift, and to be clear, to know what we're talking about, we're talking about the gift of total forgiveness before God, the gift of full reconciliation before God, the gift of no condemnation before God ever, the gift of unchangeable righteousness before God, the gift of acceptance with God, the gift of eternal life before God, that all came by the immeasurable price of the blood of His Son. To look that gift and say, well, that's nice, but not yet. I've got something else I'd rather do first, and then I'll get to that. Maybe I'll reconsider that offer later. The only thing is, it's a limited time offer for you, and you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when he's coming back, and you don't know, frankly, just when you're going to end. God owes you nothing. He doesn't owe you another moment, another breath, another heartbeat. He's coming back. And if you're banking on, well, if you're right about this whole eschatology stuff and this rapture thing, you know, when the church just gets raptured and away, then I'll know, then I'll repent, and then I'll get right with God. Dare I say, no, you won't. The same hard-heartedness that persists in you now will prevail if you get over to it. It'll prevail over again your urgency to repent. You'll put it off just one more day, one more year. But second to that, not only do we not know when he's coming, but as we've alluded to, you don't know the number of your own days. You have no promise, promise of tomorrow, this next second. Again, God owes you nothing. And you will have to reckon with him. You're guaranteed that. And you can try and avoid him now in your heart and in your mind and block this out, block out these truths because they make you feel uncomfortable, but you cannot escape him in the end. You're only delaying the inevitable. Deal with him now when he offers mercy. Don't wait. Because you don't know when he comes to steal back your life. So keep watch, be ready, be vigilant, repent and call on Christ now. And so wake up and prepare your soul to meet God. And whether that means you need to come to Christ the first time and get right with Him, or maybe that means if you've professed Christ, but you have been holding on to sin. 
He's calling you now, repent before you're ashamed of my coming. Do not let this day catch you unprepared. Finally, be faithful. How do you get ready for the end? Be faithful all the way to the end because know this, the end result will be unforgiving if you're found unfaithful. Look at 45 through 51. How do we prepare ourselves for Christ's coming in the end? Be faithful to the end. Because Jesus' next point out, what he points out next, is that the end result will be most unforgiving if you're found unfaithful. And so to make this point, Jesus paints this contrast between two servants. You have a wise one and you have a fool. And the wise one, of course, he gives us a good example. What does it look like to live prepared and in light of Jesus' sudden coming? Verses 45 through 47. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find him so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So capture this. This wise servant illustrates what it means to be ready, illustrates what's it mean to be watchful and alert What does it look like to be ready for Christ's return? Here's what it looks like. It looks like being faithful. It looks like being faithful to even the everyday type of things God has called you to. And again, that might surprise you. And it's true. Christians have really struggled at times with how to live in this world in view of the great and weighty eternal significance of the next. And we have proved positive of this even in the New Testament with the church at Thessalonica. Evidently, right away, one, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul didn't dodge discipling the believers in his view of the end times. He went right to it. It was a key, apparently, topic about what he taught the Thessalonians. But their anticipation of what they heard, their anticipation of eternity, their anticipation of Christ's imminent return, they misconstrued it, and, they, and they, it moved them to abandon their everyday responsibilities of this life. And that's wrong. Such that, as Paul wrote a follow-up letter, he had to urge them like this. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 11-12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Yeah, when Jesus comes back, it's going to change everything. Life as we know it. But till then... Christ calls you to just work faithfully now. Even so doing very everyday earthly things like holding a job, doing well at it, earning a living, providing for your family, fighting sin every day, obeying God in every way, speaking about Jesus, loving others, the everyday stuff of the Christian life. That's it. Be faithful. Everyday paced faithful obedience to Jesus moment after moment. That's how you're ready. What's the attitude of the fool? Verses 48 and 49. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards. You know, it's like the teen party that goes way out of hand when the parents have been away for the weekend. Oh, my parents won't be back for a few days. Help me out. We can clean up everything afterward. And only then the parents return after the weekend and they find the house trashed. But such a perspective begins with this thought. My master is delayed. He's taking a long time. And that means without the master around, without sure accountability, 
I can do what I want. There's no consequences. It won't matter. Maybe he's never coming back after all. And that's the working assumption, hope of the wicked, what they're banking on. Even as they hear what seems like to them stories and tales about a coming and sudden judgment, (laughs) that'll never happen. Peter captures their viewpoint well in 2 Peter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, what is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's not coming. It's been a couple thousand years now. It's not going to happen. There's no judgment, no accountability, no need to fear. Live how you want. Indulge. And then he comes when you didn't expect it. You're caught, so to speak, with your pants down. Verse 50. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know. And when he so finds you, so finds you taking advantage of his people, so taking advantage of his patience, so taking advantage of his blessing and his gifts to you, to turn them back to yourself, to dishonor him with your sin and indulge your flesh, even probably taking others with you in it, understand when he comes, his justice will be fierce. Verse 51, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we've heard about this kind of judgment before. Of being, Jesus taught about this, being cast in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, an eternal punishment away from God. But this horrifying detail he adds in the beginning of that, this is new, but it captures how inflamed God's rage will be against such, not just hypocrisy, but such abusive flagrant sin when called into God's charge and given so much, he's going to then cut this one in pieces. He's going to be dismembered. It's horrifying. But it tells you how horrifying and ugly and repulsive such sin indeed is to so abuse his goodness to you, to chest his judgment, saying, oh, that's never going to happen. Oh, it will. He's coming back. Don't be found faithless on that day which means you need to be ready now. You need to prepare now. You need to repent now because you don't know when that's coming. And to get this wrong, to be caught unfaithful, to try and delay repentance, the consequences will be grave and mercy will be hard to find. The window closes. So where do you need to repent this morning? Perhaps this hour is actually your last. Consider that. Reckon with that. You don't know when he's coming. Did you wake up this morning wondering if this is the day, this might be your last? You just don't know. If Jesus comes or calls you home today, are you ready? One pastor posed this barrage of questions to see if you're ready. Ask yourself, how would you live differently today if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? Will you be found walking in obedience to him when he returns, or will you be found wandering in disobedience? Will you be found passionately devoted to your spouse or practically negligent of your spouse? Will you be found hating sin or holding on to sin? Are you involved in actions, thoughts, or attitudes that would not make sense if this were the last hour of your life? Because it might be. You just don't know. You can't know. And so be ready. And readiness begins one faithful step at a time. And there's probably no better way to start it than to go back to this table to return to the cross. Because understand, nobody's ready on their own. You can't stand this on your own. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, with him, there is forgiveness because of what Christ has done. And so that you may be feared. You may be honored, O God. You may be obeyed. You may be worshipped, adored, but you may be feared. And so may we respectfully, in that way, fearfully, confess our spiritual laziness, confess our apathy, perhaps in our presumption, and so proclaim together that even still he is more merciful. To proclaim together that our only hope is that Christ died for me. And together we say that hope together, looking all the way until he comes. So let's do that. Let's proclaim our hope together in the Lord's death for our sins alone until he comes. And if that's your hope, that you alone are looking to Christ in view of that sudden coming judgment, that only his death for you, his righteousness for you, that that's your only hope, then we invite you to partake of this table. Noted that it would be a surprise to no one else for them to hear that you have walked with Christ. That is, if you've publicly sided with Christ, then come and join us in celebrating this table. But if you have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, one, do that now, and then two, refrain from taking of this table, lest you drink judgment unto yourself based on the warnings of 1 Corinthians 11. So I'm going to ask now the men that have been elected to distribute the elements to come forward as we celebrate the Lord's table. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will worship in this way together. Let's pray. Indeed, O God, we call out and we confess. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our iniquities. Forgive us for the wrongs we have done, the presumptions we've made, how we've not reckoned with the reality of heaven, the reality of your glory, the reality of your holiness, reckoned with the depth of our sin. We thank you for the work of Christ and the precious promise that if we confess our sins because of what Jesus has done, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we confess now that we, yes, are still sinners, We pray that you would encourage us with these truths, that your word is sure, that Christ has died, that he lives and he intercedes for his church, that he bought with his blood. That would be the surety that we have to walk in faithfulness until we anticipate your end. May we turn from our sin and turn to you in this moment. Do that for the glory of your son who bought us and whose name we pray. Amen.